hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. We have a great show for you today. I'm going to get right into it with three brief updates from my Substack, Courageous Discourse Substack. The first one is titled, Edible Vaccines, Promises and Challenges. And I want you to be aware that the Missouri House of Representatives has House Bill 1169, which we featured on the show in the last few weeks, which is transparency legislation regarding uh, genetic technology in food, largely saying, listen, if there is any genetic technology in food, we want to know about it, and we want to know if it can transfer to human beings. Most of the manufacturers of various types of genetic vaccines for plants and animals have not tested for transference into humans. The WHO had a meeting on this January uh, 2005, and they concluded that if there's going to be a vaccine used in plants and animals, it has to meet all the regulatory standards that a traditional directly administered vaccine would be for children. I highlight a paper titled Edible Vaccines, Promises and Challenges by Verinda Currup and co-authored by Jaya Thomas, pointing out that there have been attempts for uh, vaccinating against uh, enterotoxigenic E. coli, Norwalk virus, rabies virus, hepatitis B, Vibrio cholera, and hepatitis C through a variety of hosts, including potatoes, corn, spinach, lettuce, rice, and this field is ongoing. Most of it is to try to reduce communicable diseases to us through the food supply. That's uh, the basic idea. The uh, second paper is dealing with uh, the data on um, uh, microRNA transfer from food into the human body are inconclusive. And the subtitle is New Concerns of Genetic Material in the Food Supply Spur Review on research on transmission. And this is a paper highlighted by uh, Furman Mar Aguilar and colleagues published in Pierre J. Title of it, Evidence of Transfer of MicroRNAs from the Diet to the Blood, still inconclusive. I do include uh, an evidence table and, uh, and point out that in 2012 was the first evidence found that plant, plant microRNAs could enter the bloodstream through the human gastrointestinal tract and in the evidence table, Liang and colleagues described in 2015 16 plant microRNAs, uh, and they were measured in the plasma of humans who drank uh, fruit juice. And uh, uh, additionally, um, uh, you know, to counter that, uh, in a paper published by Meta Cordona et al. in 2016, 29 healthy volunteers and uh, they tried beef consumption to see if it would transmit and nothing could be identified in terms of transmission. And, um, and I give us some additional papers. So take a look at that. Uh, the field is moving along. Edible vaccines is moving along. Many people getting, uh, frankly, concerned regarding this. And you may and probably will see some transparency uh, legislation come through. And then lastly, uh, the last one is Novel Vaccine Technologies in Veterinary Medicine, a Herald to Human Medicine Vaccines. 
And here, this is a paper by Virginia Ada from the Department of Pathobiology uh, at the College of Veterinary Medicine at Auburn, and uh, describes currently what's used in uh, large animals. I do want to point out that both plasma DNA uh, in the form of the brand Apex IHN and ClinNav, as well as viral vaccine and RNA replicons under the brand names of Recombivite, Purevax, ProtoQ Flu, Allvac, iPad, Sequavity by Merck, uh, Ad, ADT, A24, FMD, Trovac, Onrab, and Reboral are all novel genetic technologies that are currently used in swine. So I wanted to point that out, take a look at the evidence table, uh, get on with Missouri uh, 1169B and show your support for that bill and other bills that are moving along in your states regarding transparency le legislation on uh, vaccines and our food supply. And we'll keep you up to date on this. This is Dr. Peter McCullough and the McCullough Report. We have a great show. We're going to feature Dr. Edna Shore from uh, Zurich, Switzerland on the backside. She's going to get deep into the microbiome and give you some rationale of why you should eat for color and eat healthy and what a favorable effect it has on your microbiome, something everybody can learn more about. So let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. The wellness company is offering the Signature Series Spike Support Formula. The wellness company supports this formula because it's designed to remove spike protein from the body in its design in terms of its mechanism of action. The accumulation of spike protein occurs because of repeated COVID-19 vaccination and COVID-19 illness. The spike protein stays in the body a long time, causes heart, brain, uh, body tissue damage, as well as blood clotting. The spike support formula is designed to help the body catabolize the spike protein, begin to remove it through its natural mechanisms. This product has been carefully sourced. Uh, it is all US made, highest quality, non-GMO and non-vegetarian ingredients. No fillers in here, just the active substances. Let me give you what is in a standard serving size. Standard serving size is two capsules and you would take two capsules twice a day. It includes natokinase, the principal uh, ingredient, 2,000 fibrinolytic units or 100 milligrams. Those are uh, equal in terms of uh, conversion. Selenium, 75 micrograms. Black sativa extract, 500 milligrams. Irish sea moss powder, 500 milligrams. Green tea extract, 150 milligrams. And dandelion extract, 50 milligrams. Why the other ingredients? The other ingredients are designed to help block the spike proteins effect on tissues, help tissues recover and repair. It's the best we have now when patients are in need. At this point in time, we can't make broad therapeutic claims regarding disease states, but we can tell you that this is reasonable in terms of supporting the body and helping the body clear spike protein and allowing your pathway back to better health. So go to twc.health and check out the spike support formula. You can use our promotional codes or go through our banner bars on our site to get promotional codes and discounts on your purchase. I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. 
chief scientific officer of the wellness company and your host on the McCullough Report. So let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. We're going to talk today to Edna Shore. Edna is a, a traditional Chinese medicine and functional medicine practitioner in Zurich, Switzerland. So she's coming to us all the way from across the Atlantic. And I've specifically asked her to come on the program to give us insights into the microbiome, uh, her practice and her knowledge in this area. And then we want to move into some innovative approaches dealing with uh, patients who develop the uh, post-COVID and post-vaccine injury syndromes. Edna, welcome to the McCullough Report. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. McCullough. I had you yesterday on my show. Today I'm on your show. And thank God for technology to be able to be in abroad <laughs> um, time, yeah. And thank goodness for the for the ability to freely exchange ideas without censorship Absolutely. and without reprisal. And I was so impressed going on your show yesterday with your kind of wealth of knowledge and how uh, even you are with the data that I wanted to have you on. Uh, well, let's kick it off. Tell us a little bit about your training and background and then how you became interested in the microbiome. Yes, I'm gladly going to tell that. So I'm a leading expert in functional medicine. I've studied also remotely um, in America in the IFM, Institute for Functional Medicine, about uh, six years ago. Um, before that, um, nearly 20 years, I have now my practice um, of traditional Chinese medicine. And for me, it was from the beginning, always like traditional Chinese medicine is medicine, just um, framed in other words. For me, qi is not energy, it's just like a um, you hit yourself with a hammer and that's qi, so it's a nervous impulse. Um, and so I, I said like, okay, I need to know more, I need to know, understand how the body functions, how the psychology functions, why people are getting sick. And that's how I got into genetics and epigenetics. I've done some remote courses there as well. Um, and um, eventually someone, a friend of mine in Israel told me, why don't you f study functional medicine? It's like, what's that now? <laughs> Never heard of that before. But uh, when I started studying, I said like, well, this is really the golden egg for me because um, it gives me the tools um, for not only understanding genetic mutations, but also how to treat those people with those chronic illness that doctors do not understand. And in functional medicine, we do one of the um, diagnostic tools that we do is um, microbiome. So I was doing that already prior to um, Corona and pandemic. And when, um, so I had already data from before. So when the pandemic hit, I was like um, questioning, like how does it change the microbiome? Because some people got Corona, like myself I as well. When I had COVID, it hit more my um, gastrointestinal area, like tummy, weird tummy pains and so on and so forth. Um, and I just wondered what is happening in the microbiome that uh, is changing and how does it affect the long run? Why do some people get more affected? Why do some people have long COVID and others don't? These were like all uh, kinds of things. And just to give a little bit more of a wrap up what, who I am is I'm just having a startup with a good friend of mine. 
um, um, that is called Ash Consulting Health Reevaluated, and we um, are going to bring individualized healthcare solutions into companies raising awareness about long COVID, uh, post-vaccine syndrome, endometriosis, which is actually my speciality, um, infertility, and so on. That sounds fascinating. Can you um, can you let our listeners know a, a bit about the microbiome, starting from the the nasal cavity in the mouth and then moving through the GI tract? To just give us an idea of when people say microbiome, what are you describing? Um, so exactly. So microbiome is um, where should I start? It's basically it's an accumulation of all the bacteria. Um, that help us co-create life. So there is a book from Alana Collin and where she states that we are actually only 10% human. We, uh, we thought, or like before the Human Genome Project, they thought that we have genetics and, the gene and that we humans have more genes than uh, trees, which was false, right? Um, and... Um, Eventually, they figured out uh, there was a human genome project and then the human um, microbe or gut project. Um, and they figured out that the genetics of our bacteria in us and on us, meaning like in all the cavities, um, on the skin, in the vagina, in the anus, inside the testicles as well. I've done a po wonderful podcast about that as well. Um, is uh, really important that we have them because they bring this um, harmony of us and also protect us from the external pathogenic factors, as we want to call it. Um, so it's it's like in every country, we want to have a balance of unemployed, unemployed, of uh, black, whites, whatever, like all the genders and so on and so forth. And the same is with our microbiome. It needs to be in a harmony Otherwise, um, trouble happens. So is it true that with the microbiome, diversity is a good thing, right? I mean, it's because a very good a, thing. And, whole, and in, yeah. yeah. And the really interesting thing is like diversity comes from eating diverse. So it's not like, oh, I'm just going to take now pills. Um, in the 80s, it was like, oh, the Americans, they take all the time pills. Um it's good and bad, yeah. I mean, the soil is not giving that much anymore, but nevertheless, I always say like first food and then supplements. It's, we need to eat real food. We need to eat organic foods. Um, we need to maybe grow our own vegetables so that we get all this diversity. But also we need to go out into the woods, uh, to the mountains, um, into the garden to play in the soil, because also from that, from, this environment, we are receiving the microbiome uh, or the, the microbes into our system. Very important that children are playing in the soil and eating the soil, for example. So, so let's um, talk about this. So the microbiome clearly involves bacteria, uh, yes. but are there, are there also um, fungi and viruses in the microbiome? Um, yes, there are fungi and they, are, they, are, they need to be in the range and then you're okay. But once, if you have like um, an invasion uh, of a, let's say, um, I just had a client now, she, um, or have a client now, who when she moved into the into her new house, um, she had mold in the, black mold in the cellar. 
And literally a month after she moved in, she started to have pains in her body. So, and she asked the people who were cleaning up, uh, can that affect? And they said, oh, no, 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 no. But I mean, it does affect. So if there is like a mold factor in the environment, um, that stresses your body out because the body maybe already is a little bit in distress because of moving, because of work, because of maybe not eating right, or whatever else the factors are, or she had a vaccine before, <laughs> then um, it might take over and diminish the protective. It's like we're saying always the immune system is in your gut or on your skin. Yeah. So if the mold takes over, it will make you weaker and therefore create symptoms. So are you saying that, for instance, let's say mold exposure where, you know, there's always mold pollens uh, in the air and, and in every house you can find some mold somewhere you find some it's just there it's just ubiquitous obviously some places it's a you know it's it's a health hazard and there's a giant buildup of mold and there's different species but are you saying that people's responses to something like a mold exposure really depend on their own microbiome Microbiome. yeah absolutely i mean i'm not the full-on expert on mold (laughs) um what's her name dr um jill carnahan she's really really into that um, but <clears throat> depending on your microbiome dysbiosis index and um, diversity, so if you have a diminished diversity, you don't have enough departments in your internal bank. <laughs> I always compare it with a big bank. So you have like all the departments are all the departments there. If they're not there, the bank will not be able to um, make profit. But not only that, the bank also needs to have enough people, bacteria, in the different departments that are working on the projects. So if you have not enough departments and not enough um, workers, you're stuffed, right? We had Credit Suisse. Credit Suisse went bye-bye now, three weeks ago. <laughs> that would be a dysbiosis big time of the microbiome. So if you're making yourself vulnerable, whether you had um, a lot of antibiotics in your life or you're eating really unhealthy now or um, you're not sleeping adequately, not in the right times, maybe you go to sleep at two o'clock in the night and then you sleep your eight hours, it's not the same like when you go to bed at 10 o'clock at night and have your eight hours then because the liver and everything needs to detoxify. So um, trauma, emotional trauma, pandemic, fear tactics. These are stressors that are really huge on the microbiome because in the microbiome, in the gut, we have serotonin and uh, we have the whole histamine process. Cortisol goes up, histamine goes up. And then melatonin goes bye-bye also out. So there is such a huge... um, it's a it's a domino uh, chain reaction. So there's clearly stressors that it can affect the microbiome. You know, people have known sometimes if they get nervous regarding uh, you know an upcoming mm-hmm. test or situation that they'll have diarrhea or have abdominal cramping uh, related to a stressful or nervous situation. Absolutely. Um, we know even uh, you know taking antibiotics which kill certain bacteria can disrupt the, the microbiome. 
but now there are some observations and discoveries that the pandemic virus, SARS-CoV-2, has a, a relationship to the microbiome. Can you explain more? Yes. So I had, um, as I told you before, I had a few questions that I asked myself. What is it doing? Why are people getting sick? Um, why do some have at all, uh, symptoms at all and others don't have at all any symptoms of, of corona? How is their microbiome um, populated? Um, I mean, some never went out of the house for two years or so, but I'm not talking about those. Um, and why do people got, uh, I mean, we, we spoke about it yesterday in my podcast, uh, how did, how come that people got vaccinated and had symptoms and others didn't, but more in the context of um, your microbiome. So the one thing that I have noted um, with everyone, so I had patients before the whole pandemic where I did microbiome analysis and what I saw before that that Prevotella, a bacteria that is very relevant for um, immune health, um, was more likely to be in the gut. And after um, vaccination or um, COVID infection, it was diminished to not there. So the ratio between um, Prevotella and Bacteroides was like, Bacteroides was very high and Prevotella very not existing. So that was one of the things that I found like very interesting. Now, maybe to give a bit of a background information, what is Prevotella? It's a bacteria, as I said, that um, plays a huge role in maintaining health overall. And um, when it is being diminished, whether it is the COVID um, vaccine or the, the infection, I'm just putting it in a question mark, but I also found some evidence about that um, that it affects that. Um, we're kind of walking barefoot and then everything that hits us will hit us harder. So the um, in order to recover from the vaccine or the virus, it will take longer because you first need to pr produce the, the butyrate building bacteria, which are the ones who are kind of like the um, first layer where the where viruses would hit in the gut. So if that is not, uh, if the Prevotella is not there, the link is, aha, uh -huh, butyrate also going to be damaged. And so we need to kind of go and build that up again. So then I do, um, for every client of mine, I'm having a quality so I'm doing one-on-ones and I do for every one of them a personalized treatment plan. And we try to build up again this butyrate and the Prevotella through that. Now, is um, the microbiome that you're um, analyzing, is that from stool samples? Yes. Stool samples and, to PCR and, on all the bacteria. Oh, okay. So it's stool samples and PCR. Polymerase mm -hmm. uh, chain reaction on the the, the bacterial uh, flora. Yeah. Um, and are there ways to organize the flora or the kind of the grouping of bacteria in terms of relative health, from very healthy to unhealthy? You mean like the difference that I see in the practice? Yeah, the different. Um, for instance, Dr. Sabine Hazen, who's been on our show 
has has you know worked with the microbiome, does samples, and can kind of organize it into a microbiome score. Uh, one of the bacteria that waits for a very healthy microbiome is Bifidobacter, as an example. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, you know, it, it, is there a way to to if you were to look at you know a hundred people to know who has a healthier microbiome as opposed to an unhealthy microbiome? Um. Well, the people who come to me, they have already an endometriosis, for example, or um, severe disease. So there I kind of don't, uh, I'm kind of surprised when it looks healthier. <laughs> um, I don't see the healthy, healthy ones. Um, but I mean, going back to the previous question with the with the COVID is like, I can see like that there are like, on, there are like three major and bacteria that have to do with the immune system and therefore also with the mucos, mucosal layer. And that's the Acromansia, um, Municifila, Bifidobacteria, and the Prevotella, which I just mentioned together with the butyrate building. So they are all kind of diminished in the people who are less healthy. Um, And it takes Quite a while, I find, with those who are vaccinated to get their gut health back on track. I would even say even over a year, even if we do like an elimination diet and really cooking healthy and so on and so forth. It takes a long time. Is the major intervention for changing the microbiome, is it diet or is it probiotics or, or what are the what are the relative <laughs> roles in trying to influence this? Um, I'm going to do a little uh, more extensive uh, explanation on that. So the way I work is um, I have developed my own method of diagnosing people. It takes six hours in three sessions where I do all the um, antecedents, so the, the, the family history, but also the emotional family histories because that's epigenetics and epigenetics has an influence of today's people. Um, And then the timeline from two years before you were born until today, everything that you have experienced, uh, food in your childhood, medication, trauma, stressors, and so on. And then I do the microbiome analysis and out of that, I create a treatment, a personalized um, treatment plan um, that, includes um, eating healthy. So I give them the functional medicine from the Institute of Functional Medicine, the elimination diet, usually um, sometimes detox uh, diet, depending on what their specific problem is. Then we do pro and prebiotics, whereas um, prebiotics, I really try to get them to eat the foods um, from the food (laughs) and not so much uh, supplementation, only if really, really necessary. Um, We do meditation, visualization, um, coaching, whatever. Usually they have some kind of an anxiety or panic attacks or stuff like that. Um, What else? Acupuncture I do a lot, um, especially the NADA acupuncture, which um, is great for the whole nervous system, the parasympathicus, parasympathetic nervous system and the sympathetic to equalize that. I'm (laughs) Germanizing the English words. Um, and uh, Chinese herbs, if it's uh, with endometriosis, and endometriosis and corona is a whole other topic that we can once maybe talk about. Um, 
yeah, that's about so, uh, about it. So, uh, so to understand, quick. so on the dietary manipulation side, you talked about elimination diet. Mm -hmm. Tell me uh, a few items in the diet that in elimination diets are commonly eliminated. I know, I know each person is stylized to their own problem, but just in general, what would be the top, you know, grouping of things that are eliminated from the diet? Okay, so the first thing is to eliminate toxic food, <laughs> which means like don't go and buy cheap uh, foods. Um, try to get as organic as possible because then you have already the whole toxicity point of um, on the food that is gone. And then, usually, I mean, when I do um, lectures in uh, or, or health days in in uh, corporate, I ask them, "Do you know this um, saying? You are what you eat." And so, if you are eating in the morning bread and at lunch you eat a pizza and uh, for supper you're having uh, pasta, you're basically a big piece of dough. So it is very important to understand that once upon a, I mean, we all ate bread since generations, but our intake of dough today is very high. And even though only maybe 2% of the human population have got um, celiac disease, about 90% of the population have got non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And that can be the, and yeah, every problem causes a stressor in the body, which creates a whole chain reaction. So if you eliminate that for a month or three months, the person can heal internally and the, the problems reside. Yeah. So that is the one thing then in compare, uh, not in comparison, in um, connection with hormonal issues. It is for me very important to explain to them why they need to eliminate milk products. Milk products, we all know, is uh, for baby cow, right? Or sheep or goat. Um, but we don't need that anymore. I mean, and also it's not, it's not my mother, it's not my milk. Maybe you've heard about that phrase before. Um, it has growth factors. So if someone has, for example, fibroids or endometriosis, it will just help the growth of this um, endometrial cyst. So um, it's not, and in Chinese medicine, we say it creates a lot of phlegm. So when people, when in children have a lot of ear infections or um, laryngitis, I said to, to the moms, just go for two weeks off milk completely and you will see the difference. Um, and so milk products would take away. Then the typical one would be soy. Um, in certain people who want to also lose weight and never could um, reduce carbohydrates, but it depends if they have an adrenal fatigue on top of that, then there are some adjustments there. Um, then another one would be um, peanuts. Uh, not because of the allergic reaction, because I mean, in Israel, they invented bamba, which is like a snack for kids in order to get them back into um, not having allergic reactions. But a peanut is not a pea and not a nut, and it is uh, very high in, um, in it can cause, aller um, sorry, allergies, but uh, um, infl inflammatory reactions, that's it. Um, so to yeah, summarize so, so, far, so an elimination to summarize so far, 
uh, dough, basically mm -hmm. things made out of flour. Uh, yeah. I call it starch. So that would be baked goods, uh, bread, cookies, crackers. Um, because of the the allergen in there is uh, is a is a wheat protein, um, gluten. Yeah. And so exactly. uh, so that's allergenic. So I got that milk. Uh, the milk protein is casein. Mm -hmm. And uh, and drinking milk from another animal is very unnatural, and yeah. and it's easy to to see. Although we rely on you know yogurt and cheese and all of these various milk products, um, so they're in our diet. Uh, but you're saying to you know to eliminate those that that um, that's understandable. Now peanuts are are forms of ground nuts, yeah. and you're right, it's not a pea, it's not a nut. And again, it has allergens. Some peanuts are so, you know, some allergies are so serious now. They don't have peanuts on airplanes, and there's mm -hmm. a great concern over peanut allergy. So I've got that um, down to give that a try uh, to to eliminate that. Um, but uh, and then on there the is flip, another one. Another sorry, yeah. I forgot something very important that is related to Corona, uh, to e either the vaccine or the um, infection is histamine foods. A lot of times they do better when they reduce histamines in their food. Give us an example of yeah. some histamine foods. So histamine food, uh, histamine um, are produced when food is um, staying long, uh, like prepared. So one thing that they need to know is they need to cook very fresh, not older than six hours. <laughs> so there are people who work like, go like, oh, forget it. I'm not gonna survive this. Um, and so I had not know if you know uh, Thermomix. I'm <laughs> a, a consultant for Thermomix. I tell them to buy that because that helps them to really prepare fresh, diverse food um, on the go. So what would be an example but, of, a, of a long cooked food? Not long cooked, long stayed. Like um, and you cannot um, uh, cook something, put it in the fridge and eat it the next day because that have, has created then histamines. But other histamine wow. would be like in cheese. So there again, we go like, okay, don't eat cheese. Um, so Edna, salmon. We, in the United States, we call that leftovers. Are, yes, are you, sorry. No, no leftovers, huh? <laughs> no, no leftovers. Thank you wow. for helping me with the English. Wow, yeah. I think you just kind of blew away uh, <laughs> virtually all of our uh, listeners here. We're having a fantastic conversation. It's so interesting with Edna Shore, who's an expert in uh, the microbiome, the human nutrition, traditional Chinese medicine. Really, she has a tremendous range. Uh, we're going to pick up on the backside of the McCullough Report, and we're going to get into some specific syndromes. And um, boy, I am learning so much. I'm taking notes. Uh, as soon as I'm done, I'm going to go review, review all this with my wife. She's uh, the chief of the kitchen. Uh, but you're listening to the McCullough Report. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. AmericaOutloud.com. If you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought, working hard to earn your trust for seven incredible years and counting. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. You wouldn't go a day without brushing your teeth or washing your hands. 
What about washing your nose? I mean, your nose does filter the air you breathe, air loaded with bacteria, viruses, and irritants. Make nasal hygiene part of your routine with Clear. No messy bottles to fill, no drowning sensation. Clear is a natural drug-free saline with the added benefit of xylitol, which blocks bacterial and viral adhesion. Available in stores and online at clear.com. That is X-L-E-A-R.com. We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. We have a fascinating conversation with Edna Schur. I've gone all the way over to Zurich, Switzerland to find her, uh, and she is a real jewel of understanding. I think probably laying out this complexity of the microbiome and diet better than anybody who I've talked to. And we are picking up on things to eliminate from the diet uh, just as, you know, just in general. And now talk about things to increase in the diet. What what are things where when you increase in the diet, almost always the microbiome improves? Um, people, so when I uh, have clients in my practice or also when I do my um, um, lives sometimes <laughs> when I have time for that, it's really just to get the awareness of what food is. Because let's get real about that. Like, me and you, we are maybe different, but uh, a normal person who works in the bank or a Google worker or so on, they have their morning snack, then they have some other snacks um, along the way, lunch, they have whatever is in the canteen. Um, then they usually don't get an apple or something like that in the afternoon, then it would be rather chocolate. So it's kind of always in the same starch, you're just giving the boost for the, uh, for the mitochondria to, ah, oh, kick, I'm here again. Um, so it's a very one, um, one-sided food. That's the right word, I think. Um, so bringing them awareness. I've got a very nice chart um, from the Functional Medicine Institute that um, shows you the rainbow foods. And I give that to them and I tell them, look, pick yourself three from each color and go and do shopping with those. And then be aware then when you're um, filling your plates during the days, uh, lunch, uh, uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, that you have at least five colors in each meal on your plate. And then make a photo and send it to me. So I've got plenty of photos from my clients. Um, and this makes a shift. Even after one week, they become more aware of what to eat of, oh, there is color, that makes me more hungry, that gets my vagus. I mean, we, we talk about microbiome. Well, huh, the microbiome is only working, um, or the peristalsis is only working when the vagus is um, calm, right? And uh, with all the stresses that we have in life, it impacts all of, uh, all of it. So bring them from the perspective of, hey, look, put blueberries, um, strawberry, strawberry wouldn't work for histamine, but um, 
red pepper, um, avocado, some nuts and seeds um, to get the butyric acid going um, and the prevotella and so on. So all, um, and then something meaty or, or even if you're vegan, get something that is uh, like a protein, a very good protein for vegans would be buckwheat or um, what do you call it, uh, quinoa or amaranth or um, uh, millet which are like those pseudo grains, pseudo grains, you call it in English, yeah? Um, they're like funny, but they're actually pollen, to be honest. Um, and pollen is uh, protein, so the body can digest it very well. You need to soak them sometimes, depending on the person, um, but uh, they get the diversity. And for example, only in the quinoa family, you have got three colors, the red, the white, and the black. and what I also tell people is like, do you know how many colors a carrot have, Dr. McCall? No. no, how many colors? I think just orange, but maybe I'm wrong. Oh, you're very wrong, yeah. Firstly, the original um, carrot is not looking the way that we, what we buy in the store. It had a few um, roots, usually two or three roots. Um, so three-legged. <laughs> and you have purple, you've got yellow, you've got white, you've got... Um, um dark orange or red and orange so you've got five colors if you buy those five colors of carrot you already have the phytonutrients that are helping you to uh, resolve inflammation anti-cancerous um, good for the eyes and so on and so forth and did you know that carrots need to be eaten with something fatty i hope so <laughs> now why is that because of the vitamin a you know, all oh, the ADEK yeah. vitamins, they need to have a fat component. It can be a nut, yeah? You can eat a little bit of nuts or something with a bit of butter or so, and then you eat your carrots. That's very Vitamin interesting. K, yeah. That well, is something that... Yeah, to summarize, yeah, on the healthy side, yeah, you're, 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 you're espousing this... Um, this goal of eating for color. You're eating with color. Walter mm -hmm. Willett who published a book called Eat, Drink, and Be Healthy. He's Walter Willett is at the Harvard School of Public Health, and he actually has more citations than any person in medical history. He actually, he's the king. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, and um, the, he, he, he also espouses this, to, to eat for color. So I was thinking last night, uh, I was at home, uh, I was working hard through the day, uh, doing a lot of media, in scholarship, which is what I do on uh, some days of the week. And my wife made a salad. So the base was lettuce. It had cucumbers in it. It had tomatoes, red peppers, some almond shavings, um, some carrots. And I think there was at least three or four different colors on this, green peppers, red peppers. And, you know, I had the salad. And I felt satisfied. Uh, and, uh, you know, I just had this general sense that I did something healthy for my body. But let me ask you this much. <laughs> Can people tell eating that salad versus me going out and eating a greasy hamburger, can the human body actually feel a healthy meal versus an unhealthy meal? I think so, yeah. Um, uh, again, it's very complex, everything, right? Um, yeah, sure, you can feel there are foods that you just, especially unhealthy foods that 
one cannot eat healthy way because they're kind of made to eat fast, like a hamburger. Otherwise, you have it all on your um, skirt or pants. Um, the spaghetti and pizza. And no, never mind fondue in Switzerland. That you need to also eat fast. So everything that is eaten fast is already not helping your digesting system to actually digest. Because where is digestion, the first part of digestion happening? In your mouth. And you need to chew <laughs> your food. So, so let, me, let me ask you about frequency, though. So let's just mm -hmm. take uh, pizza as an example. Yes. You know, is there some tolerable frequency of eating pizza where the microbiome would not be, you know, as disturbed? Let's say pizza once a month. Yeah, that's uh, right. You know, do you think there's some things that could be once a month or, or once every three months um, without sure. being a, a big deal? Uh, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It's obvious that if one is, you know, if I had pizza three times this week or, or burgers or fries four times this week, it's obvious that um, one could start to see weight gain and feel unhealthy. Uh, but if the base is... Um, high-quality sources of protein with fresh fruits and vegetables uh, as the approach, which is what I advise my patients in uh, the office, it seems like we're always on track. I, I've always told uh, people, listen, I've never seen somebody get fat eating a Macintosh apple. Mm -hmm. it's, it's always the proportion with everything. If you drink once a glass of wine, it's okay. If you have a histamine problem, don't drink red wine for a while, and then you can go back to it or take Dao in, uh, before it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that is like, uh, you can go around things. But the main thing like uh, for me is uh, you want to try to heal your gut. So if you do an elimination diet, you do it very strictly for 30 days, then you do reintroduction of the foods to check, do I react to it? Um, I don't react to it. You can reintroduce it back into your food. And of course, afterwards, I say to my clients, hey, it's a 80-20 or a 70-30 diet. But try to maintain it because if you go back to 100% uh, unhealthy again, eating, as you said, three times a week, pizza and then a hamburger and fast eating, that's the main thing. When you have your pizza in front of you or your hamburger, at least chew it. You have received you you've, um, you received teeth for a reason, and that's for chewing. And also, they clean themselves by uh, while you're chewing. The most of the cleaning of the teeth happens when you chew. Isn't it true though? If you slow down, you allow the satiety signals to go from the GI tract to the brain. Absolutely. So, for example, I, I've heard that it takes about 18 minutes mm -hmm. for the signal. So if, if you're eating in under 18 minutes, that in fact, you can overeat, you'll just simply the, the, the brain never gets gets the signal too late that you're full. And you know this, because if you if you eat a big meal, and you eat too quickly, uh, there's a sense afterwards, like, Oh, boy, I'm too full. Exactly. <laughs> right? There's a regret, yeah. like I overate. So the point I always make is, you know, try to make meals social. It's always good to eat with other people, talk, slow it down exactly. a little bit. If you're at a restaurant, slow it down. Don't have them bring everything at once. I know you guys in Europe love to go out and eat at uh, cafes and restaurants. Mm -hmm. now, and I want to, in the last a few minutes, mm -hmm. um, I wanted to tackle so many different topics, but you brought up a, 
a, a medical problem that we have never covered on the McCullough Report. You mentioned it a couple times. So I, I think I want to spend the remaining uh, amount of time on this, and that is endometriosis. Can you yes. explain to our audience is endometriosis and its relationship to what we've been talking about so far? Okay, so endometriosis, I don't know how exactly I got to that. I don't have it, thank God. Um, <clears throat> that was when I worked in, in a, a Chinese medicine fertility practice uh, years ago. I got kind of in touch with it. And then suddenly those women stormed my practice when I had my own one. It's a very interesting, um, it's a very interesting disease, disease, I would say, this hyphen ease. Um, because it is very much related to emancipation, <laughs> uh, to the stress factors that women are putting themselves into, and then the genetic pool that we have, the microbiome, uh, our mindset to trauma and so on. So what is it actually? If you look up WHO, what is endometriosis? It tells you um, it's an estrogen dominance. Um, about 10% of the female population of the earth has it um, and it prevents the women from falling pregnant because um, it can um, say like a cl clot not clot but um, um, sorry I just uh, lost my word the cysts yeah so there are four four stages of cysts um, it can be like from small they're usually behind the ovaries um, and to stage four where they stick between the ovaries and the colon or um, st um, stick to the um, bladder or in worst case it, go, it can even um, have kind of a metastasizing effect with the lungs and in very bad cases it can go to tumorizing um, uh, shapes. So, so, the, so endometriosis, to summarize, is a problem where there are cysts forming on the fallopian tubes, and they can become quite extensive, um, and uh, they're related to the ovulatory cycle. Uh, mm -hmm. there can so be, it's pain. Uh, the, the main pain. symptom is pain. Main symptom is pain. Uh, there can be scarring. The eggs have trouble tra traveling down the, the fallopian yeah. tubes. There's increased risk of ectopic pregnancy. The treatments include oral hormonal drugs and surgery to remove the cysts. It's a big deal for, for women, for sure. And are there published studies of these alternative approaches? You mentioned Chinese herbs, enemas, stress relief. Are there published studies in humans showing efficacy? Probably there are some studies. Um... I'm not so much, I mean, I'm trying always, I have some doctors I work with and I say to them always, can we do a study together? I need to prove it. Um, but uh, I don't know, people, doctors, especially now, there are so little doctors in Switzerland and uh, I think the whole world is kind of struggling with time. Um, so I couldn't get it yet done, but I do have some kind of own um, findings that I have. Hashimoto often plays a role or thyroid um, dysfunction that has a connectivity to it, and MTHFR and COMT um, uh, gene mutations that, uh, that the slow COMT, where they cannot break down the catecholamines so easily. Yeah, I think, a, yeah. I, I think as an allopathic doctor, and I know 
there's you know allopathic, naturopathic, mm -hmm. and other doctors, other practitioners yeah. who listen to this report as well as the public. I think the single greatest challenge I have with the whole field of functional medicine, holistic medicine, naturopathic medicine is is essentially the absence of published uh, human data and absence of published approaches. So many times people say things and they develop an experiential um, body of work where they have a sense that something works, but no one ever puts down pen to paper and just describes what the methods are, describes patients who undertook these methods and describes the results. And I know, I, I, I agree with you 100%, it, and I'm, it's, it's, I'm so it's, keen it's, to do that. Right, but it's a source of frustration. It's not your responsibility yeah. per se, but it is the responsibility of the field. And and as naturopathic and allopathic medicine grow closer together, I, I think there will be a burden of proof to say, listen, we have to we have to publish something. And, and um, I listened to a lecture the other day from someone who's on the America Out Loud platform and uh, ranged through a whole variety of approaches and different uh, solutions, let's say for long COVID. It was, he named one you know, one supplement or vitamin after another, but not a single time was there a citation of human data. It was just, they simply were a collection of good ideas. And I think that's going to be the, the challenge moving mm -hmm. forward. We have to get past good ideas and good experiences. Do you to... want me to give you some, because I know that there are some, I'm just, uh, for the COVID yeah, no, no, thing, I mean, this I wouldn't have be the, a citation. This, <laughs> right, but this wouldn't be the time or place for it. But I think, you know, th that is the challenge, is to get beyond the good ideas, these kind of general good ideas, to the discipline of, of of publishing and i think that is really are you willing where it's are at. you willing to because, to publish with me something <laughs> well yeah my, my exhaustion phase is uh is <laughs> well past but my point is it, it does take discipline uh, to do that because what can happen in the naturopathic world is one can just mention one thing after another thing after another thing and sometimes some naturopathic approaches involve like 20 different things in the same uh, yeah. person I've sat. And that becomes incredibly difficult to understand what's really working, what's not. Does one need to do all 20 things or not? And so it raises a lot of questions. But as we bring I think this. If yeah, I may we, say here something, I mean, that that's, we, we spoke about that yesterday in my show is um, that, for example, Viagra was originally a Chinese herb, yeah, and they singleized it and patented it and so on. Um, and most of the thing, aspirin was willow, yeah? Willow bark. Everything comes from some kind of a naturopathic or from nature. Um, the problem is if you patent it or if you make a study, exactly what you're saying is like, do you need to do all the 10 or 20 different approaches? I think because what I what I believe that I do is individual medicine and Yes, one can say, oh, I cannot prove it. I didn't write a paper on it. But maybe that's more the quality effect that I then can give. Because I really understand this person, Mr. Miller and Mrs. Fisher or whatever, whoever, who sits in front of me, and it's not just the broad public. Yeah, no, I understand that. I mean, one one field to relate to would be the field of psychiatry where clearly each person is very, very different and they mm -hmm. give a very different vignette. 
Yet the field of psychiatry moved forward because things were aggregated into trying to understand certain syndromes. And uh, and then what's called cognitive behavioral therapy, which yeah. is a which is at least a description of the approaches. I think we're going to have to get to that level. What I see in naturopathic medicine, as I see books are are uh, produced, and books yeah. again almost always give a laundry list of of different micronutrients and supplements and, and microbiome elements, and it just becomes an, an, an extremely exhaustive uh, description. Uh, and then some general principles like, you know, eat a healthier diet or eat for color. Yeah. But, but, um, uh, uh, but without, you know, without um, having the discipline to get to the point, like the field of psychiatry to organize into diagnoses and then, then demonstrate progress over time, because I, I, I think it's going to, I think the field is going to have to move in that direction, you know, the field of, of Chinese herbs and what have you is far older than allopathic medicine. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, allopathic medicine has swept in and become hyper-dominant. And, uh, and, and one of the things that drove it is actually, you know, putting pen to paper and, 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 and you know, analyzing things and doing studies. And I think we're going to need to see that from the the naturopathic uh, holistic uh, you know a, you know ancient world the ancient world's going to have to catch up with the kind of the discipline of doing this yeah um, actually the institute for functional medicine um i think they're in cleveland they have their uh, they have plenty of studies but not about endometriosis specifically. Yeah, I know endometriosis is a unique thing, and yeah. I always I always hear that too from presentations that well, there's plenty of studies, but there's somewhere yeah. else. Go go look somewhere else. <laughs> I, I guess what I'm looking for at some point in time is to say, listen, uh, there are plenty of studies, and you know there are you know 12 studies in endometriosis demonstrating this. You know, getting to the point where we we have that evidence, I think that's where we need to mm -hmm. go. Um, it, it's different. It, it's one thing to say there's evidence, go find it somewhere, than having somebody actually know it. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that's where the field needs to go. Well, Edna, this has been a terrific interview. Um, I've learned so, so much. much about it. Um, endometriosis introduced to our show for the first time, and you certainly can have continue on conversations about that. It does affect so many women. So leading cause mm -hmm. of fertility, infertility, and, uh, and a great source of distress, uh, particularly women through the earlier ages of life. And certainly the microbiome plays a massive role in, uh, in human health and disease. So uh, Edna, thank you so much for joining us on the McCullough Report. Thank you so much for having me and I hope to be able to speak again. And whoever hears me who is maybe a CEO and wants to bring awareness about uh, endometriosis to the company because every company has got people, uh, women with endometriosis, please contact me. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report.